Hi, I'm Ben Kaplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Noah Kagiyama about stage fright. In the interview, we talked about why stage fright can make us perform worse, why working through stage fright is such a beneficial component of taking music lessons, how to prepare to combat stage fright in the weeks leading up to a performance, what to do at the moment of the performance, the relationship between anxiety and excitement, and how we can use this relationship to our benefit, and overall dispelling the notion that nervousness is entirely a negative phenomenon. Performance psychologist Noah Kagiyama is on the faculty of the Juilliard School and the New World Symphony. Formerly a conservatory-trained violinist with degrees from Oberlin and Juilliard before completing a PhD in counseling psychology at Indiana University, Noah specializes in teaching musicians how to utilize sports psychology principles and demonstrate their full abilities under pressure. Noah's work has appeared in media outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, NBC News, WNYC Radio, Musical America, and Lifehacker. He maintains a coaching practice and online mental skills courses and authors the Bulletproof Musician blog and podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to let you know about Abigail Prophet's Whole Foundation Method. The Whole Foundation Method is a fun and natural approach for beginner and early intermediate piano students. Abigail has everything from flashcards to games to improv exercises to worksheets. Every game can be played in multiple ways, so it's easy to adapt it to the student. I especially appreciate that her note reading activities are centered around the landmark approach, which I feel is much more productive than teaching by note recognition, as I've discussed in several episodes on the podcast. To learn more, go to Whole Foundation Method on Etsy. That's Whole, W-H-O-L-E. Now on to the interview. Noah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about stage fright. Before we get into any specific suggestions of how to deal with it, I want to talk about it more in the big picture. The reason we care about it isn't just because anxiety is a bad thing in of itself, although of course it is, but because it causes musicians to perform worse than they otherwise would. So my question is, how come nervousness and performance quality aren't independent variables? Well, so the interesting thing is is that I think most of the reasons um, why we tend to not associate nerves with good things is that it's not especially pleasant to experience. I think the main complaint that we have is it's, it's uncomfortable. It's not how we feel in the practice room. And a lot of times it actually, like you said, can lead us to perform worse than we think we ought to. Uh, but there are also a lot of times where we play better than we would otherwise play because you know the nerves does give us some um, positive elements. And actually there's a lot of research that goes back a few decades um, which has sort of established that nerves are not universally bad. Hmm. Uh, we'll get into it in a second because there's some other little tiny details around nerves as well, um, and that it's not this singular construct, but it's it actually has a couple of different components. There's a physical component and there's a mental component. But even before we get into any of that, um, a lot of times our comfort level and our performance level are not necessarily correlated. So there are a lot of situations, athletes, musicians, who will tend to have their best performances at a relatively low level of activation, where they tend to be relatively calm, and that's where they have their best performances. 
Um, but then there's some others who will have their best performances at a moderate level of activation or anxiety. And then there are others who will have their best performances at a relatively high level of activation or anxiety. And there was a study that they did even with um, pistol shooters who are so finely attuned to their bodies and finicky that they will squeeze the trigger between heartbeats to make sure that their pounding heart doesn't affect their aim at all. And even for these folks, like about half of them or the majority of them had their best performances at a moderate to high level of activation. This had nothing to do with their comfort. I think if we all had our preferences, we would be able to perform at that lower level of activation. But for better or for worse, that isn't generally where, where we have our best performances for most of us. Because I think if you think about some of your best performance in history, some of them probably happened and maybe a good number of them might've happened when you weren't so much nervous as excited, but there still was that sort of you know, the butterflies were definitely there. And so, so, so part one, I think, is that we tend to avoid nerves because we think it's really bad for performance. The other complication though, like I started alluding to earlier, was that there is a somatic element or physical elements to anxiety. And there's also a cognitive element to anxiety. And those two ingredients actually affect performance differently. Um, I think we tend to fixate on the somatic element or the physical aspect of anxiety because it's so noticeable and uncomfortable. Right, like our yeah. heart starts beating, yeah, sweating, starts sweating yeah. like we get tight. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that element is, is, I might've already kind of said this, but it's not that well correlated with performance quality. The aspect that is more correlated with performance quality is the mental side of things. Uh, so aside from tension, so, cause if we're like tight and like all our muscles are tense, then obviously we're going to have problems playing as fluidly and comfortably physically as we would ordinarily want to. But if we can manage to kind of release tension, it turns out we can actually play really well and oftentimes even better than sometimes we do in lessons or the practice room, so long as we're able to focus in the right sort of way in the moment of performing. Um, and there's a whole literature on, on what's called choking in sports and why that happens. And, and that is pretty fascinating. I mean, the gist of it is that there are two, it seems that there are two pathways to choking under pressure um, that are both centered around attention and focus. So one of them is if we get distracted, right? So if we're worrying about having a memory slip or worrying about what the audience is gonna think or what our teacher's gonna say, or really difficult run coming up in two measures or two lines, then yeah, chances are something bad can happen because we're just not focused on what we're doing in the moment. The other more fascinating, I think, way of um, choking is these are called explicit monitoring or conscious processing theories. And this is where, and we've all experienced this, I think, whether it's smiling for a camera or walking in front of a camera or even just sitting on camera, as we start trying to consciously control motor movements that we don't normally think about, suddenly those motor movements become less fluid and automatic and we end up being kind of robotic or unnatural or forced and we end up messing up. And I think that's probably the thing that most of us have experienced most often where you, know, you wanna play really well and it's the first time and you're not super warmed up. Um, it's really tempting to try to control every little tiny motor movement that you've practiced in the practice room which seems like a reasonable thing to do, but then suddenly you're using parts of your brain and thinking in ways that you don't when you're playing well and we end up messing up. So it's a really long kind of exploration of the various reasons why I think we tend not to play our best under pressure. But I do wanna 
make sure everyone is also aware that sometimes nerves can be a really useful thing where it does help us play better than we ordinarily would. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about throughout that answer is it seems like stereotypically teachers and everyone deal with stage fright and anxiety by thinking, don't be nervous, don't be nervous, relax. But in some of what I take from that answer, like the example you gave with the pistol shooters, there could be a situation where you might not want to reduce nervousness so much as repurpose it and change the physical and mental effects of it so that we use it in a way that benefits us. Absolutely. Because the other thing too is most performers, most athletes, they don't go into games or competitions or performances feeling nothing. Um, their experience just happens to be more aligned with feeling excited or like a kind of like a good kind of butterflies or good right. kind of nerves, exactly. as opposed to like the panicky, you know, debilitating type that the rest of us tend to experience. It reminds me of, I don't know if you know the name Edna Galansky, but she does a lot with the Taubman approach. And I interviewed her about piano technique, and she was making a similar point about how she really objects when teachers tell students to relax, because what it does is make us disengaged and have slack. And instead, we actually do want some degree of tension and engagement, but just the right type of it. And it sounds like a similar point can be made about performance anxiety. We don't want to be so relaxed in a performance that we actually play like the way we would if we got out of bed at 4 a.m. It's just that we want the right type of mental focus and stimulation, which might involve some of the adrenaline associated with nervousness. It seems like a similar situation in both cases. Absolutely, yeah. So again, before we talk about specific strategies, one more big picture question. In my opinion, one of the major benefits of taking music lessons is being able to get the experience of working through anxiety when presenting in front of a group of people. But many parents might not want their children to participate in recitals or performances because they don't want their children to be nervous and they think, I want lessons to be fun and I don't want my child to be anxious. Of course, all students are different. And at least in my opinion, there are some students who probably would benefit from not performing. But for students who are more on the fence, can you talk about some of the benefits that students can receive from developing effective strategies for combating performance, anxiety, maybe even extending beyond music? Yeah, I mean, for me, if I think back to the most meaningful and memorable moments in you know a couple decades of playing the violin, like there aren't necessarily any practice sessions that stand out in my memory, um, or lessons, or even rehearsals. I think the most memorable and meaningful moments were all on stage, actually, and and certainly there were some that are memorable because I was freaking out or had a memory slip and, and so forth. And so those are ones I'd maybe more prefer to forget than to remember. But um, but all the positive ones, I think for the most part, were ones in which there was a degree of pressure and I was feeling some of the butterflies. And, and so I guess the short version of my answer is that I think maybe the best reason uh, to perform is that performance can be a really huge thrill and a really meaningful experience. And I would hate for you know young musicians or kids to be deprived of that or to have this notion that that you know, that sort of internal discomfort, which could lead to excitement is something to be feared or something to avoid it, to be avoided. Um, Cause I think if, you know, as parents, if we are a little bit too protect, I mean, there are times where we certainly want to be protective of our kids, but if we are kind of unilaterally too protective, I think sometimes it can lead our kids to internalize the message that 
A, being nervous is a bad thing, right? Exactly. Um, which isn't necessarily the case, or that being nervous will necessarily lead to them performing poorly. And maybe even related to that, that, that there's something really bad and awful about performing poorly in front of other people. Right. Um, Cause what I would hate for that to lead to is, you know, like um, fear of failure or risk aversion or, um, not having opportunities to learn how to bounce back from frustrating moments. Kind of like how, if, you know, we went to soccer practice or basketball practice and never got to play a game, never got to, you know, lose a close game or, you know, miss a penalty shot. Like if we don't have those opportunities, it's hard to figure out how to bounce back and improve and, and grow for the next one. Um, I think it also really changes how we practice if we know we're never going to have to play something in front of an audience or in front of yeah, somebody. It makes it very, very low stakes. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded a little bit of um, Olympic diving coach, Jeff Huber, who said that he often told his athletes that he had two goals for them. One was to help them learn how to dive better. The other was to help them learn how to dive better in competition. Mm. And he said he articulated those differently because, you know, there's obviously overlap, but mm -hmm. Those are two unique challenges that require different methods of preparation. And I think if we take one of those out of the equation entirely, we don't experience that other type of preparation that, like you were suggesting, can really generalize to other aspects of our life, whether it's interviews for colleges or for jobs or, you know, book reports in middle school or present presentations related to science fair in high school or, you know, all these other things that... I think increasingly require our ability to perform in different ways, uh, whether it's academically or socially or sports and otherwise. And um, things like, you know, using recordings or doing more run-throughs or engaging in, you know, more variable practice and different types of practice strategies that are oriented around getting something the way we want the first time instead of knowing that we have two, three, four repetitions and we can do things in little tiny chunks and we don't have to string everything together all at once. Yeah, I think so much of what stands out to me and what you were saying there reminds me of earlier when we were saying that some of the nervousness that students might feel is not necessarily bad and it comes throughout life. I mean, you were saying that many of your most positive musical memories playing the violin are ones where there were some nerves associated with it. I would say the same principle is true in general in life. Most of the meaningful experiences that I've had, not just in music, came along with some degree of nervousness. I mean, there has to be some kind of stakes to make it meaningful. So I can see how parents might want to avoid these negative emotions for their kids and have their kids' musical experience be nothing but fun. But I think a lot of these emotions, even if they feel negative at times, can ultimately be turned into positive experiences. It sort of reminds me of the movie Inside Out, I'm not sure if you saw it, where it was all about these different emotions and how all of them are important, including the quote-unquote negative ones. So now I want to talk about how we can work through these negative emotions. There's two parts to it. There's how to manage it leading up to the performance, and then there's how to manage it during the performance itself. So I want to talk about how we can prepare for performances weeks in advance. You've spoken and written about two concepts that I didn't know about before exploring your work. One is performance practice, and the other is visualization. Can you talk about those two concepts and offer any other advice that we could pass on to our students in terms of activities that they can engage in in the weeks leading up to a performance so that they can come to the performance with a healthy mindset? 
Sure. And I think the the key point is is one that you mentioned, which is that you know preparing for performance such that we won't feel the panicky kind of nerves is something that does start weeks, if not months before the performance. Um, I think a lot of times people want to know, okay, I'm going to practice as hard as I can. And then when the week comes or when the day comes, now I want to know what I should do to be less nervous that day. But the reality is that all that work actually Too has late. to come <laughs> yeah, beforehand. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, there are some things we can do in the moment, but but it's not going to go quite as well as if it's been prepared for in advance. Um, so I think performance practice is really the big one. If I mean, if you think about how our practice looks, and this goes back to what Jeff Huber used to talk about um, or still does talk about, a lot of the practice activities that we engage in are not really oriented around helping us be more prepared to play our very best on the first repetition without feeling super warmed up all at once, right? Like a lot of our practice activities are oriented around improving as quickly as possible, given a pretty comfortable situation and multiple repetitions of the same thing, not all strung together from beginning to end. And so that's fine to a degree, but at some point we do have to practice specifically for the demands of a performance. And so, I mean, there are a lot of very straightforward practice strategies that could fall in the category of performance practice, but even things like, um, and this is something that that your listeners may or may not be familiar with, but it's becoming much more talked about, um, not just in sports, but also in music, uh, something called interleaved or random practice. And this is where instead of giving yourself, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes to play the same passage over and over and over and over and over, where the second time sounds better than the first and the third's better than the second and the fifth and the 10th, you know, is better. And even if you can do it five times in a row from repetition 10 to 15, that's nice, but you don't get to do that on stage. Right. The first one has to sound better, right? Mm-hmm. And so sort of like how we would study geometry formulas and so forth with flashcards, kind of doing the same thing with with music too, like practicing getting things right the first time by, you know, starting, you know, spending a few minutes on one passage and then going to another passage for a few minutes and then another passage for a few minutes and yet another maybe for a few minutes and then cycling back to the first passage again to see if we can get it right. And I know teachers will sometimes do this even in lessons where whether there's a scale or a tricky passage that they're trying to help the student with, maybe they'll start off the lesson with that and then they'll go work on some other things I think that's used a lot of times when teachers teach rote pieces, meaning pieces intended to be taught by memory only, where you keep coming back to the rote piece in short bursts throughout the lesson to see if they still remember it. But I think the idea of doing that, not just with rote pieces, but with performances, so you can experience getting it right on the first attempt, is a really valuable preparation strategy. Anyway, you were saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's lots of ways of integrating that concept into practice and lessons and and so forth. Um, But even, you know, performance practice involves a lot of mental skills, like you mentioned, visualization, which could range from, you know, seeing if you can do a run through of the piece in your head to see if it's memorized and you remember everything that you need to, um, or even practicing remembering some of your personal highlights from the past so that, you know, backstage, when you're starting to get nervous, you can remember times when things went well, um, to the more kind of what you would expect performance practice to look like, which would be running things through for your family or for neighbors, for friends, for strangers and different venues that you might be able to get access to. 
for instance, um, the violinist Midori has talked about how she feels it's more practical to essentially find ways of bringing the stage to the practice room as opposed to trying to find ways of bringing the practice room to the stage. And that's really the fundamental concept around performance practice. So uh, Philadelphia Orchestra Concertmaster David Kim, for instance, has said that he will do 30 or 40 run-throughs of a concerto uh, with a pianist for different audience before having to you know, go somewhere and perform it, which sounds insane, right? That's, that's a lot of time and energy and resources devoted to preparing for that. He wouldn't do that for you know, performance of Beethoven 7 or, or any orchestral performance because that's what he does every day. But you know, if he has to really prepare for something a little bit different, that's what he'll do. Uh, there's a percussionist at the Met, Rob Knopper, who um, also did 42 mock auditions before his Met audition, one a day for six straight weeks. Wow. And so, again, it doesn't mean that 30 to 40 is the magic number that we all need to hit. But usually, I think we'll do like maybe three or five. You know, five seems like a lot. Run-throughs, you know, maybe even without accompaniment um, for family. And so then when we get on stage and we feel you know uncomfortable and things aren't going the way we want, it's easy for us to think that, oh, you know, I'm just not cut out to perform. Like I don't have what it takes or something wrong with me or like I'm not doing something right. It might just be that, you know, if it takes someone like David or Rob, 30, 40 of these kinds of practice performances or mock performances to start feeling more comfortable being uncomfortable, I think we can be a little more patient with ourselves and, and give ourselves time to start becoming over time more comfortable with those sorts of things. And, and also the other thing I wanted to emphasize is it is true that doing more competitions or auditions or performances can be helpful, but it's also important to make sure that those experience, experiences over time are increasingly positive ones. So you can take a kid or a young musician and say, all right, you're just going to perform every week now for the next you know, three months over the summer. But if they just do that and they're not also provided with some skills to use in those situations, like how to regulate their energy or how to focus more effectively in the moment or you know, how to incorporate these different types of practice into their preparation so they feel more secure playing things the first time. What I worry about is that you could get lucky and the student might kind of intuit some of these strategies or just start to have more positive experiences and build confidence. Or it could go the other direction where each one just starts to feel more pressured and more um, negative than the last one because they're just doing the same thing over and over and not actually integrating new skills that they can test out from one to the next. So, so it is an effective strategy as long as it's not the only strategy, I think, that a student is taking. I also think the key point for me in what you're saying is how you're framing repetition, because I think a lot of times the way that people prepare for recitals or a competition is taking the hardest part of the piece and running just that spot 20 times, and it will be bad the first few times, but then gradually it will get better, and then eventually it will be right. And as you were saying, that doesn't really simulate what a performance is like, because you have to get it right the first time in a performance. So although repetition is good, it should be repetition of the actual experience of the full performance and not repetition of just an excerpt. But I have a follow-up question. So earlier in this interview, you were talking about how one of the problems with nervousness is that it can make you overthink and take something that would otherwise be automatic and put it at the front of your consciousness so that it's not automatic anymore. 
So if we have a student who practices the performance many times and they feel like they can do it, how can we make sure that that sort of thing won't happen at the performance so that their running of the performance beforehand was at one point automatic, but now with the full audience there, it doesn't matter because they start focusing on the minutia of the performance. Maybe there's some kind of mental preparation that needs to happen to go into this performance alongside practicing the full piece. Yeah, absolutely. So the goal is to practice everything that you're going to be doing at the actual performance. So it's not just going through the motions physically of what the notes are, uh, but making sure you are thinking the same things that you're going to want to be thinking about at the performance as well. So you know, you don't want to go from you know being really cognizant about sound and phrasing and you know, particular quality of the articulation in this particular section and how the shape of the phrase goes to this note and thinking about the underlying pulse and like the color that you want and this narrative that you might have in your head. You don't want to go from that in the practice room to then on stage suddenly thinking about the audience or the judges or how the touch of the piano is a little heavier than the piano at home that you've been practicing on and like all these other things. And so Usually what happens though, is when we're doing practice performances, I think if we're not aware of that mental piece, there's a tendency to just kind of let our mind wander, right? So we'll be thinking about lunch. We'll be thinking about <laughs> wondering how it's going and, yeah. you know, thinking about things that make us feel pretty comfortable or mm -hmm. that don't matter that much. And then suddenly when we go on stage, we're not sure what to think about. And so our brain just goes to the worst possible things. If I could share just one strategy that I learned from an interview of yours that I now use all the time, uh, it's to prepare students for the mental piece. I don't remember if it was you or the interviewer who said it, but to simulate an adrenaline rush, do 10 jumping jacks or some kind of cardio activity before you run the piece so it actually feels physiologically, like how you will feel in a performance where you're not relaxed. I've been doing that with a lot of my students and it's been really helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, um, there's a sports psychologist out in California who will have his clients um, do visualization on a treadmill. Oh, interesting. So he makes sure that when they're doing imagery and like imagining the performance, they're actually recreating physically some of the things that they might be experiencing in terms of their heart rate being elevated and so forth. Yeah, I think that helps prepare the mental component on top of the physical component. So now I want to talk about after all of that has happened, where they've done the performance practice, they've done the visualization, and it's the day of the recital. I know earlier in this interview, you said that most of the strategies to do on the day of the recital are perhaps too little, too late, because the prep work should have started earlier. But that being said, do you feel like there's anything you could do as a teacher in the moment if a student comes up to you on the day of the recital and says, I'm so nervous, I'm going to do so badly? Is there anything more that we can say to that than just, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, you'll be great, or the things that teachers normally say? Yeah, so Alison Woodbrooks is a um, professor at at Harvard, and she has done some really interesting research on um, threat versus challenge states and how adjacent anxiety and excitement really are physically. Um, like, essentially, they're physiologically pretty close to being the same thing. It's a couple, some small differences. But um, so the idea is that if we can start to attribute our physiological response to being excited as opposed to being anxious. The idea is that we might play better. 
And she, so she did some studies with, you know, math test, math test anxiety and public speaking anxiety and even vocal performance or singing. Um, and she found that across the board saying, I'm excited, even if you're not sure that that's what that actually is that you're feeling internally, but just saying I'm excited kind of as a mantra instead of I'm so nervous, like I'm freaking out, or even trying to lie to yourself and say, you know, I'm calm, or even trying to calm yourself down saying you need to calm down. Like all those things seem to not help very well because you can't very easily do that just because you want to. Uh, whereas saying I'm excited and attributing, you know, the heart rates and, you know, the sweats and all those sorts of things to being excited, because those are very much the same sorts of things that you experience when you're excited. Um, you know, this one study with the singers, they found, I don't remember the exact numbers, but basically, um, I want to say that the the folks who said I'm excited when asked how they're feeling before singing performed somewhere, like maybe like in the the 80% range. Whereas those who were in terms of like note accuracy and all these other things, whereas the ones who were um, told to say, I'm nervous or I'm anxious when asked the question, how are you feeling? Performed, I want to say somewhere like in the 50 something range. Wow, that's a huge difference. Right. And so there's a substantial difference between the two. Um, so, so if nothing else, you know, students can be prepared in advance to, to know that, you know, you're going to feel different on studio recital day or performance day, um, like your tummy is going to be doing this and so forth, especially, I mean, you don't need to plant this idea in their head, especially if they're younger, but if they've already kind of confided in you about it to say, yeah, that's normal. That's what, you know, all the great performers experience as well. The trick is that they actually start to experience it as excitement because they need that energy to really put everything they have into the performance and bring that excitement and all that emotion to the audience. And so, yeah, just, Practice using as a mantra on the day of, I'm excited, right? You know, just to yourself in your head, I'm excited. That's so good because that goes back to what I was saying earlier in this interview where I was saying that the stereotypical strategy can sometimes be to try to pretend that the nervousness is easily disposable and you can like get rid of it. And that's often not realistic. And so I think repurposing that nervousness as excitement seems much more realistic. I do want to talk about this overlap between nervousness and excitement. This might be a selfish question, but I bet a lot of our listeners experience this too. But whenever I prefer Perform, whether I'm nervous or excited or a combination of both, I notice that I have a tendency to make the tempo go a lot faster than I want it to. So I'm a music director for a theater, and I've had many shows where I recorded the show to see how it went, and it's a show where I'm either nervous about it or I feel more confident and then I'm excited. And in both cases, I often listen back to the recording I made, and I'm just blown away by how fast I took it, even if in the moment, it didn't feel like I was going fast. So I have a question about that. Can you talk about the relationship between anxiety and excitement insofar as it relates to aspects of performances like tempo and how that might explain what's going on here? Yeah, this is where, and you know, it's a huge logistical pain to set up practice performances, but this is where that ends up being really helpful because it's an opportunity to find out what happens when I feel some genuine degree of nerves or uh, butterflies or, or excitement. Um, and it can help you kind of prepare for that in advance and know what your tendencies are. Um, of course, it, it's hard to manufacture those sorts of situations. So sometimes we just can't know until we get up there and then we discover it. But one of the things that one of my teachers used to have me 
try to be more cognizant of is essentially oriented around finding more ways to be intentional about each moment. There's a tendency, kind of like when I get excited and I have a lot of ideas I want to share, I tend to talk faster because I don't want to forget them. I just do that regardless. (laughs) (laughs) So words or syllables could very easily get kind of clipped or like shortened, and that leads to things kind of rushing in a way um, in terms of speech. And so in a similar way, he was trying to get me to be more intentional about like my use of vibrato Mm. or which notes exactly I wanted to highlight in in specific phrases that Mm. I was aiming towards and being really conscious about the particular kind of sound and basically taking a little bit more time to care more deeply about each Mm. of the moments that were important in each phrase. So not every single note, because then you start slowing things down and things don't have a flow and Mm -hmm. there's not this kind of direction that's necessarily, but But yeah, whether it's, and I know that pianists don't have vibrato per se, but really focusing on which notes you want to highlight, um, you know, taking time to let the phrases breathe, maybe even by thinking about an underlying pulse um, and how those moments connect. I mean, finding ways essentially of thinking more deeply about each moment that's important. Kind of like how um, when my son was taking tennis lessons as a little kid, Obviously, the first thing that people say is, you know, keep your eye on the ball because that yeah. does help. But that's kind of a vague, abstract sort of yeah. thing where, yeah, like, obviously, I see the ball coming because it's in front of me. But seeing the ball come at you and really, really looking at it are different levels of kind of focus and concentration. And so to help him better track the ball, um, his coach asked him to tell her what number he saw printed on the ball. Oh, that's seriously focused. Right. So you really have to look Uh carefully, like, and try to pick it up much sooner before it comes across the net um, and pay attention as it gets closer to you all the way, you know, through to making contact. And so a similar sort of thing, I think, can be done in music as well. If, if we just figure out what those equivalent targets are. What that reminds me of is in my yoga classes, we have these balance poses. And oftentimes when I start doing them, I'm falling and the teacher will say, find one spot on the wall and focus just on that. I think that's a similar thing to what you're saying about focusing on vibrato when you're stimulated for a performance. If you have something very specific and intentional to focus on, then you can move away from that overstimulated mindset where everything is all over the place, whether you're falling in yoga class or whether you're rushing tempos. So anything else before we get to you and what you're up to now? Is there any other advice you'd have for our listeners, most of whom are piano teachers, as far as what we can pass on to our students in terms of dealing with the nerves associated with a performance? I think for me, the main thing is to make sure that maybe even more than students, that parents understand that there's not anything wrong with their kid if they (laughs) perform worse under pressure or if they seem more sensitive to nerves at an earlier age. And I think it's easy to to look at other kids and be like, oh, that kid seems like they're doing just fine. What's, you know, not, you wouldn't say this to your kid, what's wrong with my kid, but just internally feeling like, you know, what have I done? Like, am I doing something wrong? Like, do I need to worry about this? And, and honestly, everyone experiences nerves at different stages in their development it happens inevitably um and so yeah there's nothing wrong with anyone that experiences this it's something that's common it's just a matter of developing a whole set of skills around preparation and then the mental side of things um which like you said does apply pretty generally across all types of performance so you know at some point they'll they'll be glad that they learn how to handle this and manage it and and embrace it 
Absolutely. That's what I always try to tell my families when I talk to them about recitals. So before we go, can you tell us what you're up to now and where everyone listening can go if they want to learn more about you? Sure. Um, not quite there yet, but I'm preparing for an educator-focused course. Uh, it'll be like a three-week course starting in July, mid-July, and then there will be two additional follow-up sessions in the fall when school starts again and students start coming back for lessons. Um, the idea is to to hopefully empower educators and teachers, not just in their own playing and practicing, but to give them these mental strategies and research-based tools that they can then integrate into their lessons and help their students incorporate into their practice so that um, when they, if they go into music and come across me or, you know, go to Juilliard or something like that and take this course. My goal someday is for a student to come out of the class and be like, yeah, you know, my teacher has been having me do this for years already. Like I learned nothing new in this class. That would be my goal. And so <laughs> um, rather than them coming into the class and be like, oh, this was transformative. Like right. I learned so many things I never heard about. I honestly feel like I made more of a difference in the world if it was the opposite. So, so that's, that's coming up in July. Um, as far as where to find me, outside the context of that, um, bulletproofmusician.com um, is the place to find me. And there's a weekly research-based practice hacks email where you get a new little practice hack every week. And uh, when you sign up, you start off with like a five or six day kind of a crash course on effective practice and practice that transfers to the stage that hopefully is kind of fun to, to, to start up with. I also want to say that I saw you recently did a webinar for the TopCast about practicing. Mm -hmm. So all of our listeners should check that out as well. Um, I assume that going to bulletproofmusician.com is the best way to stay updated about these courses that you're talking about. Yeah, there are a couple live courses, one for educators, another one for learners, you know, whether it's high school into adult learner, learnerhood. I don't know if that's a word. Um, and then there's also a couple self-paced, self-study type courses if people would rather do that on their own. Sounds good. Noah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>